What's up, listeners? This is Derek, and then we'll get into episode four of 1951 Downplace here in a second. But I wanted to take a moment to drop something in here before Casey kicks us off with the intro, and then we get into the meat of the show. Uh, I made a mistake in the show uh, a couple of times. I referred to the writer of The Abominable Snowman as Nigel Keene more than once. I did eventually call him Nigel Neal once. Well, his real name is Nigel Neal. I was mistaken on that. Additionally, just kind of an apology, I didn't get a chance to edit in any film clips like I did with episode one, two, and three. I had a personal family emergency come up, and editing time, post-production time, became incredibly limited real quick, and I wasn't able to get things done before I had to fly out of town. But episode five should be back firing on all cylinders again. So there you go. Welcome to episode number four of 1951 Downplays. I'm your co-host, Casey, and on behalf of myself, Scott, and Derek, I'd like to wish you all a happy new year and hope that your holidays were merry and bright. In this month's episode, we'll be exploring the windswept mountaintops of the Himalayas with Peter Cushing and a Forrest Tucker, a Forrest Tucker that is a long way away from what you may remember him by in his F Troop days. Filmed in 1957, this Val Guest-directed feature toys with the ancient legends of the Himalayan Yeti, with a little bit of spice to keep this tale fresh and new for both 1957 and today. Now, you're going to think I'm crazy when I ask this, but could Hammer's The Abominable Snowman make for a decent stand-in to H.P. Lovecraft's The Mountains of Madness? You're just going to have to listen to find out the answer to that. So, before we set off on this frigid expedition, be sure to join us at the official Facebook group for 1951 Downplace. You can find that at tinyurl.com slash downplacegroup. There you can chit-chat with other Hammer fans, or even with Derek Scott and myself, without even having to put on your Hammer pants. Now, if Facebook is not your style, don't feel left out. You can feel free to give us a call at 765-203-1951 and leave us a voicemail, or you can hit us up on Twitter at 1951downplace. And now, ladies and gentlemen, slip into your favorite Peter Cushing smoking jacket and amble into the parlor for this month's discussion on The Abominable Snowman. band of men on a perilous search for the man-beast of Tibet, the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. You've heard of him, haven't you? The world's most shocking monster. No one's ever lived who's seen him. Be on your guard. He's coming to this theater. The abominable snowman dares you. We dare you. Dare you to see the abominable snowman of the Himalayas? What did it look like? Tell me, what did you see, Kusang? Tell me! I see, I see what, what men must not see. They're after me. They know it was me that did it last night. They're after me. After all of us. They just killed McNee. Why say what? that? It was an accident. It's me next. They know it was me. Stay here. Ed, wait. Ed, I can hear you. I'm coming. You've got to understand that isn't Shelley. It isn't anybody. I can hear his voice. It's in your own mind. It's just happened to me too. Warning. Only those with stout nerves and strong hearts should risk seeing the abominable snowman of the Himalayas.
right, so episode four of 1951 Down Place, we wanted to break outside of the box that we've set up for ourselves. We're not talking about another Terrence Fisher film. We're talking about a Val Guest-directed film by the name of The Abominable Snowman. It's a black and white film, another first for us here on the show. We didn't go too far off the track because it is another Peter Cushing film. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Yes. We still got Peter Cushing. You know, he's still our bud. He's still our wingman on this one, so... <laughs> Plus, this was the closest thing we could come up to for a Christmas episode. So, Yeah, by the time you all hear this, this will be after Christmas. I hope everybody had a very happy and, and joyful and safe holiday and all that stuff, and that everybody got all the Hammer films that they asked for for Christmas. Indeed. Because we are recording before Christmas, though, none of us can really talk about what we got for Christmas, so hopefully all three of us got some Hammer goodness somewhere along the way. <laughs> <laughs> or at least a Hammer. A ham. Well, there you go. Well, I'd settle for that. I will name mine Peter. <laughs> All right. So, the Abominable Snowman, directed by Val Guest, who also directed the Quatermass films, has a little bit of James Bond history in him. Did a lot of comedy films as well. When I think Hammer, I don't always think Val Guest, but I probably should because he was really there kind of before Fisher started doing the horror stuff. Val Guest was doing the sci-fi stuff for him. But he's not somebody who is intrinsically linked to Hammer, in my mind at least, the way somebody like Terrence Fisher is. That being said, uh, I think he's probably pretty responsible or, or at least partly responsible for helping move Hammer from the comedies and the adventure stuff and the uh, the film noir stuff to, well, uh, you know, he never did a gothic film, but I'd say like their horror film because he, he was there doing the Quatermass. He did this film and then boom, Frankenstein came out after this. I don't know if they could have gotten to the Frankenstein level without having that foundation to build upon. So he was sort of the gateway to the horror films. You know, there's even a book uh, that kind of implies that he may have been in line to direct The Curse of Frankenstein. I don't know how accurate that is. But they're talking about how he was lined up to do it. The only reason he didn't do it was because he was doing this one. He was doing The Abominable Snowman. Uh, that book would have been A History of Horrors, The Rise and Fall of the House of Hammer by Dennis. And I apologize, Dennis, if you're listening. Michael? Michael? M-E-I-K-L-E. Anyway, this book seems to imply that he was in line to do Frankenstein, but he was doing this one instead. Which seems weird because Frankenstein actually was done beforehand. There's These movies came out the same year. Huh. Just, you know, Frankenstein was the first time Peter Cushing was involved with Hammer, so this film couldn't have been done. doesn't, whatever. Bottom line, Val Guest directed this one, not Terrence Fisher. <laughs> I didn't realize they were the same year actually being production very close together. That really shows me how hardworking Peter Cushing was. And this was not the first time Peter Cushing had done this story. This, like a lot of films that Hammer did pre their gothic horror, was a film that was based on television. They had done a lot of films like the Dick Barton series specifically comes to mind. They'd done a lot of films that were based on television programs or even radio serials. This story was told as The Creature on BBC Sunday Night Theater. And Peter Cushing played the same role. The Tom Friend character was somebody totally different. And the rest of the cast was mostly different. Uh, but yeah, this was not the first time the story was told. Uh, they were both written by Nigel Keane, who also directed a lot of Quatermass films as well. I'm sorry. He also wrote a lot of the Quatermass films and was also kind of the inspiration for one of my favorite John Carpenter films, uh, Prince of Darkness. This was, yeah, I love that film. And there's something in Abominable Snowman that, that made me think of Prince of Darkness as well as another heavy hitter in my personal hierarchy of important horror stuff. And I'll talk about that here later in the show, so... Do we want to synopsize? Well, yeah, we should probably synopsize. It's, a, it's an Abominable Snowman movie. And Casey, you're a big Bigfoot fan, right? Oh, yeah. You, you want to kick us off since this is like the Yeti, kind of like Bigfoot's cousin kind of thing? Um, I think pretty much everybody's heard, at least heard of uh, you know the Yeti before. It's You know, you get in the Himalayas and Chinese Tibet, stuff like that. It's their version of the Bigfoot story. Classically, it's always involved with being high in the mountains and... They stalk way up in the upper reaches of the mountains and whatnot, so that's why they're rarely seen, rarely found. For this movie, plot-wise, it's really fairly uh, straightforward. Peter Cushing being a retired mountain climber who had had an accident um, at some point and stopped being a climber. Then he'd heard all these rumors. Uh, he's a botanist, I believe, right? He's yes. a scientist of some sort. Yeah, yeah a botanist. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so he's up there um, checking, uh, researching fauna and stuff like that, staying with some monks. He has his wife, brought his wife with him, who they made many jokes about uh, making sure he didn't go climbing again while he was up there in case he was tempted. And his assistant, and then they hear, start hearing the rumors of the Yeti from the guides from the monastery and whatnot. And they decide to take an expedition to go see what they can find. And that really is quick and easy breakdown of it because the movie itself is as simple as that. They thrust us straight into let's go find this Yeti. And then you get to the experience of what happens while they're on the mountain looking for it because it is such a alien. Oh, what would you call it? Like an alien atmosphere up there since you're so high out of the normal give and take of the world, so to speak. I mean, there's not a lot to it in terms of in-depth plot. You're absolutely right. Uh, Val Guest always insisted that this is actually just an adventure story. It's not a horror film at all, which is what we've been covering so far here on the show. It's an adventure story about some guys who go up into the mountains and, and find what they're looking for, sort of. Yes. <laughs> One of the things that I think also should be mentioned is uh, Forrest Tucker's character, Tom Friend, who's basically, to me, he's sort of like an American showman. Yeah, yep. and he he actually finances the trek up the mountain. He's friends with um, Peter Cushing's character and convinces him to go with him. But you know, his goal isn't to find a yeti. His goal is to bring one back to civilization and charge as much as he can to, for people to come see him. It's very King Kong esque there. For very a King Kong. Yeah, and that's not how he got Cushing's character involved. Uh, at first, he tells. Dr. Rollis and Cushing's character, that they're just going to go out and take a look and look for the Yeti. They've got a tracker. They want to learn about him. It's not until they get Cushing or Rollison up into the mountains where they kind of reveal that, yeah, our interests are probably a little bit more commercial than we led you to believe. That's a big part of the, uh, and really that's the ultimate uh, conflict of the movie too, is the different outlooks on this whole mission and this whole expedition between Cushing and Tucker and then you know, you're, you've got your science versus commercialism, and it's really straightforward, but it, in a lot of ways it works out fairly well as far as in terms of a movie. I was more interested in the dynamic of, of resolving their disparate goals than actually seeing the snowman once they get up yeah. there. because, And I was pleasantly surprised because my experience with Forrest Tucker is pretty limited. Uh, I only recognized his face from watching – episodes of F Troop on Nick at Night years ago when I was a kid. And uh, I always kind of expected him to become this goofy kind of, well, he was on F Troop, you know? I was going to say the same thing. That was my only experience with him as well. But I was really impressed with his acting chops. I thought he did a really good job. I I really enjoyed the interaction between him and uh, Peter Cushing's character. There's something about Cushing anytime you put him next to somebody. <laughs> and I don't know if it's the Cushing effect or what, but uh, Val Guest always said nice things about Tucker. He called him Tuck. Uh, I did have a quote about Tuck from uh, Val Guest's autobiography that I wanted to read because I thought this was pretty interesting for a guy that I only know from F Troop. The only other actor I worked with who ever discussed his face was Forrest Tucker when he came over to make The Abominable Snowman with me in 1957. Just so you know, he told me casually on one of our first meetings, This side of my face, I'm the good guy. That side of my face, I'm the shit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) And for most of the movie, I feel like they kind of shot the I'm the shit side because even though I liked his performance, his character is still a little slimy. Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, in the original TV miniseries, it was not an American character. Uh, He was changed to an American for the film. And I couldn't help but think, you know, Hammer, you're about to begin a a series of films whose success is financed by the American movie studios. (laughs) And here you are with a film where the most disagreeable character or just, you know, uh, character who, who could be called the bad guy is this loudmouth braggart American character who's in it just for the money. And I, I just thought, you know, I, I don't know if that was an intentional dig or what, but it did feel a little off-putting knowing that the Americans finance the gothic stuff that Hammer's known for. <laughs> well, it, it is very – it does come across very much as her, her Americans. Um, <laughs> it comes across that way quite definitely. I think it's telegraphed that way. But at, at the same time, too, I'm not knocking him for it, but I think you know you just can't get over the fact that this – that whole role is almost seems like it's directly lifted from King Kong. 
plot wise, just because it's very it's much the same in a lot of ways than they made Forrest Tucker's character come across just like the characters in King Kong. And so it's not that much of a stretch because they're I think they're obviously playing that role out in a different situation. And you could almost say that they were pulling it out and playing it out in a more down to earth situation, which I know it's funny saying Yetis are down to earth, or, you know, more realistic <laughs> than <laughs> a giant ape. But it, in comparison to a giant King Kong ape, yes, it is. One thing I was curious about with Forrest Tucker, you know, he was the obvious American. Was the rest of his team that showed up at the monastery, were they all Americans as well? Well, Kasang was practically a native, wasn't right, he? Kind right, of I mean, o- other than yeah. Kasang, I'm talking about like Ed Shelley and the rest of them. I kind of got the impression they were more worldly. Especially Ed's character's accent kind of slipped in and out. <laughs> yeah it was hard to tell too with that guy that didn't do much but sit in his uh sleeping bag and stare <laughs> yes <laughs> well he was the one that had seen a yeti before <laughs> yes. it it changed him it changed him <laughs> a very zoe dashanellish <laughs> You know, this is an old movie, so I don't think we're going to like too crazy st- uh, spoiler wise because we know what's going on. It's a Yeti movie, but he's laying in his sleeping bag in the tent, and you see the big Yeti hand reach through underneath the tent and is feeling around. And that guy just sits there and stares and has the creepiest smile on his face I have ever yes. seen. <laughs> yeah, uh, oh. but then he sits there in movie time. It feels like he's sitting there for you know five minutes just staring. Yeah, and then the native guy sticks his head in and freaks out immediately. You can hear him screaming throughout the entire mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that that actually goes into the scene that I wanted to reference real quick. I mentioned a second ago the the other horror nod and and you know knowing a little bit about Nigel Keane's background and what his interests were and some of the films and stories that he was involved with. I, I can't help but think this was intentional. After the Yeti hand reaches into the tent, and I know we kind of skipped way ahead in the film, but after the Yeti hand sneaks into the tent there, Kasane comes out and doesn't – isn't this where he starts screaming, I have seen that which I should not have seen? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very Lovecraftian. Yes. And I read some reviews and mentions of this film having a Lovecraft vibe in it. You know, this group of scientists and or explorers going off to go discover some secret knowledge somewhere and being irrevocably changed by the experience and some of them not really surviving at all. Uh, and I thought that was it was nice to see that because there's definitely a, you know, the thing kind of vibe in here and out the mountains of madness kind uh, of vibe in here. There's a dude, lot of. I got it. Yeah. I'm sorry to step on your toes. I just wanted to interject here because that's one thing. That was the overriding feeling I got through this movie uh, from the very beginning. And Peter Cushing's character really helped push this over the way. But this movie felt like it would have been such a perfect introduction to At the Mountains of Madness. Yes. Oh, that would have been wonderful. (laughs) Now, Scott, you've not read a lot of Lovecraft, but At At the Mountains of Madness is one of Lovecraft's foundations in terms of Lovecraftian yeah. horror stories that fans of the master should read. I'm familiar um, with it. Yeah, well, it's the film that Del Toro was going to do before he decided to tell the studio that he wanted all this money to do it. But uh, yeah, uh, at the yeah, there's definitely that vibe here, and even given well, you know, what the Yetis end up be- being at the end of the film, uh-huh. there's definitely that vibe too. It's so good. Well, in a way, too, the. So there's so many aspects here, I think, that are similar because, you know, you've got your scientists and they're running their expeditions that starts out. Peter Cushing sounds ex- comes across ex- almost identical to the, your narrator in At the Mountains of Madness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the slow creeping discoveries as they find stuff scattered throughout the mountains and, you know, hints and pieces and there's things messing with them. There's uh, the, you know, the slow gradual reveal at the end and when you finally see the full creature is very much like at the Mountains of Madness uh, there towards the very end of the story. I mean, the only thing that's missing is the lost city that's out there and that, mm-hmm. that you know, that they could, could have easily slapped in there. Yeah, I, I was I was feeling that vibe in the film, and then the guy yells, "I've seen that which I should not have seen." And <laughs> yep. That that set it in. I was like, "Dude, this is Lovecraft, man. This is perfect Lovecraft." Listening to what you guys are talking about now, I'm not as much into Lovecraft, so I didn't get that vibe. But there was another film that I was getting a vibe off of. 
And, uh-huh. it's, and it may sound odd, but it was Predator. And the reason I say that is there's the group that goes off into a remote area, and they start yeah. getting picked off one by one. And the creature that they're tracking, you don't, you don't see all the way through the film. The creature also has the ability to mimic the people and <laughs> draw them out into places they shouldn't go. Yeah, that is a good comparison. You know, especially with the and you, you know, you tie in the reveal of the end too, and it yep. fits that fairly well too. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't thought that, but yeah, the Yeti totally could have been like, "Want some candy?" Perfectly. I mean, you're <laughs> <Yep>. absolutely right. <laughs> huh? I got new respect for this movie now. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of stuff at the beginning that I think. It did go a little long for me. I mean, I get wanting to establish the character of Rollison and his relationship to the native culture there, you know, trying to make sure that we got that Rollison is the good guy. If you were going to paint somebody with that kind of black and white kind of brush. Uh, what did you guys think of his uh, treatment of the of the locals? I kind of got this. He's being respectful, but also a little entitled. You know, he and Foxy, you know, and his wife, Helen. Yeah. Are, are being treated very well. They've been given a place to stay in this. And, and I don't know what the arrangements are, and we're not really privy to that in the film. But it seems like they take care of them very well, and they're very you know, well-respected there. But I, I feel like that the uh, the English characters, the British characters, especially Foxy, seems very – I don't know. He doesn't call yeah. them natives. Not yet. I mean, Tom Friend calls them natives later and starts talking about the savages. But – it's this weird mix that I, I felt like they just kind of showed up and said, we're here to do some research. Oh, okay. There's a, yeah, there's a little bit of condens, uh, I want to almost said condensation. Um, there's a little bit of a condescending tone coming from Peter, from Dr. Rollison here. When, a little bit. Uh, he's talking in there because you could tell, whereas, uh, Foxy is kind of bumbling and stumbling in his way through their customs, you know, and not liking their tea and not really being able to show how he doesn't want to drink it or whatnot, or just drinking it to, to not offend him. Whereas Dr. Rollison's coming through, he's like, Oh, well, we're going to pretend to like the tea because, you know, we're going to make him think that we like him. And you can kind of tell that he's talking down to him a bit, thinking that that's going to help them convince them that they're following all their customs and whatnot. It's, it's a subtle thing, but I think it is there to touch that. It was that tea scene that really, pointed that out for me for me it was when he started smoking in front of the llama yeah yeah that, <laughs> that seemed a little odd from what i understand uh that was not planned that this is the film that started val yes calling cushing props cushing because yeah. he was always pulling something out and the cigarette was something that was not planned it was not in the script he just kind of did it uh um in the commentary to the movie on the dvd that's put out that's available now to everybody a guest says that a lot of times whenever Cushing would pull out a prop, everybody on set is like trying real hard not to laugh <laughs> because none of it's planned. And if you go back and like there's that scene where they're looking at the tooth that friend brought up yeah, and Peter Cushing is looking at it and then he brings out like a, a, like a tape measure and starts doing some stuff to it. I think he pulls out a nail file or something like that. If you look and you watch that scene again, Forrest Tucker brings his hand to his face. And I swear it looks like he's trying to hold back a laugh. <laughs> and yeah. None of this was planned. And the cigarette thing definitely wasn't in the script, but it did add that edge of, I don't know if I'd be asking if I could smoke if I was in this holy place. I know. You're in a sacred chamber, mm-hmm. obviously, because it's where the llama, you know, spends all his time and whatnot. So you would think that you, you would that wouldn't even cross your mind. And he didn't even outright ask. He just pulls it out and kind of nods at him like, are you going to try? Are you going to challenge me on this? And then lights up and moves on. I mean, it was a different time, you know, smoking was, was, you know, but still it felt not as bad as Tom friend calling everybody savages and, and kind of talking down to them and that sort of thing. I mean, I, not nearly as bad as that. I would think it was like you mentioned that was a different time and whatnot, especially with the smoking. And I would go as far as to say that it's obvious that they probably got some kind of funding from the cigarette companies for this movie because these people smoke like a mofo. (laughs) (laughs) Anything happens, you know, Tom Friend, they're in the middle of Himalayas, way up on a mountain in the middle of a blizzard. And Tom Friend sticks his head in. Hey. It's the, the wind stopped down. Let's go smoke. Because, <laughs> you know, mountaineers walking in the thin atmosphere, they're going to smoke a lot. But they did that like three or four times. Yes, they did. 
but they have their oxygen tanks just in case. Like, really? <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> I have supplies up here. I have cartons and oxygen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I brought a spare lighter. <laughs> <laughs> the other character that I wanted to bring up real quick was his wife, uh, Helen Rollison, played by Maureen Connell. She's not in the original story. She was added to the film. And I didn't like her. I wanted to. Uh, she's named after Peter Cushing's real life wife. His wife's name was Helen. They named her Helen. And I don't know if that was intentional to kind of make it feel more natural or whatever, but I didn't like her. I felt like, I don't know, she just didn't fit for me. I got the impression from her character that, and spoiler alert here, that the original story, nobody survives. Mm. And then they changed the story later after a, a rewrite or something. And they're like, we need to have some way so we have one of the characters survive. Well, let's bring in a loved one that will go out after them. She seemed tacked on to me. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think in a large part, too, you can see that they're not really sure what to do with her throughout the movie either. She's got a couple scenes that focus around her, but they're just, they just don't fit the flow of, of, the, of everything else. Yeah, we got to remind the audience she's there, but we're going to use her at the end of the film. And it almost feels like every time we see her as the reminder, as you said, which is a good way to put it, she's always hysterical. She's always like always writing at least a seven on a scale of one to ten on the emotion scale. Yeah, she's yeah. always up there, you know, at least at that mark, if not a little bit more hysterical, snooping around a monastery where she shouldn't be snooping around, which felt like an yeah. odd scene as well. And. I couldn't help but feel like Hammer may have known what they had with Curse of Frankenstein coming down, and they had to inject something to kind of give it that spook factor. I, I don't know. It just felt out of place to me, and I didn't like her. I just – I don't know if it was the actress yeah. or, or how she was used. She didn't really turn up in any other Hammer films. Well, I think uh, Scott was pretty, kind of hit the nail on the head there, though. They, uh, they're kind of throwing her in there so we'd have somebody to go back and see that somebody's still alive. And basically, they have somebody go look for him or whatever towards the end of the movie. And they just didn't have a good way to change that script. I felt the same way about Peter Fox, Foxy's character. I didn't like him either. He yeah. seemed the most cartoonish. Yes. <laughs> he really did. This this was the Michael Ripper character of this film. And again, I know I'm bringing up a guy that we've not talked about on the show, but this was the Michael Ripper character of the film. He's the cartoon character. Of the, oh, ho, 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 you know. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, this is, if you were only familiar with Forrest Tucker with F Troop, this is what you expected Forrest Tucker to be. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, when his name turned up on the screen, as you know, in the credits, first thing I'm thinking is, okay, he's going to be the kind of bumbling scientist type. Yeah. You know. And he ended up being a bit of a badass, even though he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> he was the shit. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I, Helen comes running in. She's all hysterical. And the first thing Foxy does is, is offer her a drink. <laughs> and then, you know, to calm her down. And it's like, if you need another one, it's right over there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect they were well supplied. <laughs> Once they left the monastery, the group went out hunting for the Yeti. Every time the film came back to the monastery, it was like a letdown. It was like, a, we got to add these in to remind the audience of these characters. But it just really, like, like a speed bump of the action of the story to me. Oh, yeah. I agree. I would have loved to have stayed up in the in the mountains a, a bit more. But I, I do see in terms of the purpose of storytelling needing to have that one character that's going to go out and find whoever survives. <laughs> it's pretty obvious, too, that those scenes at the monastery are we only cut back there because of, you know, Dr. Rollison's wife. So because really, to me, once they set off on the expedition, there wasn't a whole lot of reason for them to go back to the monastery period anyways. Yeah, I mean, the real tension was up in those mountains between friend and Rawlison, you know, the science versus commercialism. Yep. There, there's this conflict. And I just kept thinking, you know, Peter Cushing is screwed. He cannot turn around and go back to the monastery if he wanted to at this point. I mean, he's an accomplished climber, but, you know, he's up there. He's not going to be able to – they're not going to let him take supplies to go back down. You know, right. it just – Well, death, I, oh. I kind of disagree with that because, well, after – McNee is gone because he has to take care of him because of his foot. But at that point, I mean, Kusang made it back without any supplies. Well, that's true. Yeah. We didn't yeah. have a real good sense on how far up there they were. Yeah. I, I guess in my head, I, and maybe I've seen too many documentaries now about people trying to climb Everest and things like that. I expected it to be a little more snowy and a little bit more treacherous. Yeah. It, it didn't feel as treacherous as I thought it, it probably needed to feel. 
I didn't feel the threat of the environment. I felt more the threat of friend doing something stupid, you know, like laying out the traps or trying to kill something. Yeah, exactly. But I, I didn't feel the threat of this 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 oppressive environment that could kill people, you know. Uh it's important to note that really the people who are killed half or or at least hurt it's because of what they brought up on the mountain with them. You know, the guy in the trap. It's not somebody falling off a cliff. It's not an avalanche. It's nothing like that. It's a guy getting his foot busted up because he put his foot in a trap. Yeah. Uh, this film was shot in the French Pyrenees. In the uh, French Pyrenees, is that right? Yes. A lot of the mountain scenes were. Uh, the studio stuff was shot at a combination of Bray and Pinewood Studios. So they were kind of all over the place. They had three main locations they were shooting in. I thought they blended rather well. I do love that a lot of the quote-unquote helicopter shots of the mountains were not helicopter shots at all, but just a cameraman in a cable car <laughs> yeah. being pulled up the mountain and shooting these vistas of, of this, this mountain range that just I thought looked great and I thought aged pretty well. A lot of times when you watch an older film, the quality of the second unit, those kinds of shots don't always match. To me, I felt like it matched. Well, I thought some of those scenes were absolutely beautiful. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, I'd love to see this in color. And then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. It'd be all white anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. It was really, really beautiful, some of the, the shots they've got of the mountains. But one of, one of the things I also want to talk about as, as we're sort of talking about uh, sets was the actual monastery set I thought was incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bernard Robertson, again, making magic. That set was fantastic. And that was that was a studio set? Yes, it was. Nice. And one of the things that really got to me, and, and Tracy noticed the same thing, she was watching it as well, is how well that set reminded us both of the Expedition Everest Q at Disney's Animal Kingdom, which is, <laughs> which is a ride where you go and you go up into the Himalayas to meet the Yeti. They, oh, nice. I've seen a couple documentaries on the making of that and how Imagineer Joe Rohde and his team actually went to the Himalayas and they studied Buddhist monks and monasteries and everything and used that when they were designing the queue for the ride. So that really led me to thinking that uh, the set designers did a lot of their homework on how these places actually looked with the prayer rags and the, the bells and just the overall look. They, they got it right. And that also extended to in, in me to when you actually, at the end, when you have the reveal of the Yeti, they got that right, too. Because they went, it wasn't your Bumble-type uh, abominable snowman. He wasn't, he, he wasn't your cartoonish. <laughs> Bumble's bounce. Not, not like that. No. And, and this also goes to the research that, that I know through the Disney ride of how the uh, the people of that area describe how the Yeti looks and his color and his actions and his size. They got all that right, too. And that was really impressive to me just because I knew the history of how Disney went and researched that area, that Hammer did the same thing. Yeah, I, I loved the set. I thought it was fantastic. See, and this is why... A lot of more modern films don't really feel as solid to me because whenever you've got like – if they made this film now, all that would be CG. You know, they'd have a couple oh, yeah. of things here and there and for the characters to interact with. But all the backgrounds would all be CG'd up and we'd all the documentaries we'd see about it behind the scenes would be actors in front of green screens. And there's something solid and real about the sets in a lot of Hammer films that are just fantastic. And Robinson – you know, we haven't talked too much about like set design and things like that here on the show, but I feel like all the films that we've watched so far, part of the reason why they're so good and why we enjoy them so much is because of the production design. And that's all Robinson, who did a fantastic job. I mean, and uh, to some extent, too, you, they actually did a good job, especially in the time period of making that set in that environment a character in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't have a movie like this in which the environment is not a character because that's even though I felt more threat between, you know, the, the two leads, it could kill you. <laughs> you know, exposure could kill you up on the mountains like that. So no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what did you think of the llama and you know, all the, all the natives or savages as friend puts it? Well, I never got that impression, especially from the llama. 
I liked his character. I, you know, you were talking earlier about the fact that Cushing was smoking in front of him and that maybe the llama might be offended by that. I got the idea that he was sort of a voyeur almost. I mean, not a voyeur. That's not the word I'm looking for. But, you know, could see, <laughs> could see the future. A uh, seer? Kind a of, seer. Thank you. Yeah. And he knew what all was really going on. And he just kind of, I know you guys are going to get your comeuppance, so I'm not too worried about it. I did like him. I, I At first, I thought, okay, these guys are buds. You know, the llama and Rollison, they get along. They're intellectual equals. But then Friend shows up and starts tempting Rollison to come with him out onto the mountain. And I felt like the llama at that point started to get a little distant. Either that or he was offended by the cigarette. <laughs> well, I think he was offended by Friend. Oh, uh, Yeah. Yeah, or how, annoyed by uh, having to babysit Peter Cushing's wife. And Foxy. <laughs> I did find it interesting that his name is Friend, but he's not really a friendly guy to anybody up here. No. <laughs> and it's so weird to hear Cushing's character looking for him at the end. Friend, where are you, friend? <laughs> like, he's, he's really not your bud. No. <laughs> Uh, the Llama was played by Arnold Marl, who did appear in The Man Who Could Cheat Death with Hammer in 59, which is one of the few Hammer films on Blu-ray. I've not watched it yet. I've got it here. I, I'm looking forward to watching it. But it's a Terrence Fisher joint, so I didn't want to push it on the show yet because we've been so fissured. <laughs> uh, the extras were all people that they cast from the local London Chinese restaurants. Nice. So Valgas said for years after this film, anytime he and he'd go out to Chinese, everybody was saying hi to him because they remembered working with him on <laughs> this film. All the waiters and waitress, all the waiters were very, uh, oh yeah, yeah, Val, you know. <laughs> so, so I suppose if you want to get free Chinese for life, you just make a film and cast the Chinese waiters and waitresses on it. <laughs> well, another one of the the characters, the actors that really kind of threw me for a loop a little bit was the uh, was Robert Brown, who was playing Ed Shelley. Mm -hmm. Because when he popped up on the screen, and I looked at him, and, I, and I'm like, I know him. Where do I know him from? And then it, it hit on me. He played M in several James Bond films mm. later on. Oh, nice. And in, in fact, he, he even plays M in one of my favorite ones, which a lot of people don't like, it, which was The Living Daylights. But he was in. He played M several times, um, and you know when he was older, obviously. But it was like it was something in the eyes when I looked at that character. I was like, I know that actor. Where do I know him from? Now, I, I'm not as well versed in James Bond as you are, Scott. Was he involved in the David Niven Casino Royale? Um, I think so. I think because. He because Val Guest was involved in that Val film. Guest was. I don't think that um, that Robert was. I'm okay. looking at his IMDb page right now, and I don't see it. He also did work for Walt Disney uh, in uh, The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, which was on The Wonderful ah. World of Color. And now, also that's also known as Dr. Sin, right? Mm -hmm. Which was also made as a film by Hammer called Night Creatures. <laughs> <laughs> But no, he, he didn't show up as M until uh, 83's uh, Octopussy. That was the first James Bond movie I ever saw. Nice. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what else is there to say about the movie? I mean, the cast is pretty solid outside of the people they leave behind at the monastery. Uh, we've kind of danced around it a little bit. Let's, let's talk about the Yeti. Yeah, I like these bendy fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> The first time we actually see the Yeti, it's the hand creeping into the tent. Yes. And I didn't like it. I don't know if it was too much too soon. Like, I didn't expect to see a full-on reveal. Okay? I don't want to see that in this film. I didn't need a full-on reveal. Right. But I, I felt like that was too much of the Yeti to see right away. I wanted to see more shadows leading up to it. I wanted to see less. I could see that. I could see that for the most part. I thought the hand was okay, but it, at the same time, it was... There's a couple of problems because I thought you know they they lingered on that shot too long. Yeah, maybe that was there's it. too much. There it was just too much time watch, watching the hand you know feel around in the tent. If you see it come in, come out, and whatnot, that would do it fairly quick. 
like he's something he caught out of, you know, like a glimpse out of the corner of your eye, then that would work. But then at the same time, too, it's offset because you got this goofy guy in a sleeping bag staring at it open mouth with a weird <laughs> grin on his face, which kind of takes down the <laughs> shock of it, too. <laughs> well, I'm going to disagree because I liked the hand scene. And, and what I liked about it is when he picked up one of the rifles it gave you a sense of how big the Yeti's hand was because it was, it was obviously it wasn't a regular rifle. It was a little bit smaller to make the Yeti's hand look bigger. And I thought that was cool that they went to that extreme to, to actually put smaller rifles in there. I thought the you know, and the hand itself was, it was all right. They did a good job though, subscribing to the fact that, you know, the old rule that you just don't show your monster openly for a monster movie. And they did that fairly well here, except for, like I said, I, for me, they just lingered on it a little long. Yeah, maybe that was it. I just, it was too much. You know, I just, maybe I just wanted to see just like a finger or something or just a hand instead of like his full on arm going in and all that. I don't know. I found that there was a model being made, if not completed, of the full Yeti for us to see. But according to the DVD commentary, uh, Valkes did not want to see it. He didn't want to put the full thing on screen. But surprisingly, the writer, Nigel Keane, wanted to see it. And he said that Val missed an opportunity by not showing the full thing, especially after one gets killed. Yeah, because when the, when the, that, you still just see the arm and the hand. Yeah, you just see the arm and you see the bloody footprints in the snow. And that's the point in the disc where Nigel Keane says, Val missed an opportunity. I wanted to see the full monster. And Val didn't want to see it. I don't know if I wanted to see a full corpse there either. I don't need to see it. But then by the time we do see like the top of its head at the end... I felt like I was in a Twilight Zone episode. I don't know. There's something about the way that was shot. It felt like yeah. Twilight Zone to me, especially once we learned that, spoiler alert, the Abominable Snowman is telepathic. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, which <laughs> I'm okay with. It just felt very Twilight zone at that point to me, or maybe even original Star Trek. And, and that's not a criticism per se. It's just I wanted to go back to Peter Cushing and Forrest Tucker going crazy in the snow together, trying not to get each other killed about the Yeti, the whole character, I got the impression or the vibe that he wasn't from Earth. I mean, he had the the telepathic abilities. When Peter Cushing is talking about they're just up here biding their time until man dies out so they can take place as the top of the food chain, I guess. You know, some of their abilities and, and what they were doing that they they weren't originally from here. And maybe that was just my own, you know, it was more sci-fi feeling than Twilight no, Zone. That, that's uh, Lovecraftian again, though, too, is that, again, in the Mountain yeah. of Madness, you know, the things they find are not of this earth, or if they were, they're from a long time ago. Right. So, definitely. But I did like the look of the Yetis when, when you, even you saw them in silhouette. Oh, that was the best part, just seeing the silhouette? Yeah, because they got, I, yeah. they got the look and the shape from what I've seen, you know, through Disney. And how they've portrayed the the Yeti, they got that look correct, I think. And going with what uh, Derek was saying, you know, about the reveal, how the end reveal, when they showed the monster, it was very Twilight Zone-ish, which it was. At the same time, though, it was great because it kind of gave you chills because they did a really good job in that shot of showcasing the fact that these things were intelligent. They weren't just mindless animals. Yes. There was some, you know, there's a lot of thought going on behind those eyes, which was, to me, what I thought was a little more chilling because you think of the Yeti, you think, you know, just giant ape running rampant over the mountainside. But this one, you could tell that it's like, there's a sense of we're going to outsmart you. These weren't just creatures or beasts. And I was a little disappointed in, in hoping they weren't going to keep this this up at, earlier in the film when friend and company capture the monkey and they're like, we're going to sell this as the abominable snowman. It's a beast of the Himalayas. I'm, I'm glad they didn't keep that up and that it, we did find out that this is something much more than that. I loved the music. Uh, again, this is a change for us because all the films that we've talked about so far, the music's been by James Bernard. The music in this film was composed by Humphrey Searle, who did not do a lot of hammer work. This may have been his only hammer film. I wasn't able to find too much about him in terms of what he thought about his work on, on this Hammer film, but I did think it was unique. It doesn't have that gothic feel. He does use those uh, those tonal bells in the score that I really enjoyed. I wish there was like a full release album of the soundtrack to this one because I really dug this music. But other than that, what else is there to say about the film? Ultimately, I, I thought this movie was okay. It's a good movie, you know, to sit back and veg out to, uh, you know, especially good. I think it fits well for a Sunday afternoon and stuff compared to other, oh, yeah. hey, uh, compared to other hammer flicks that we've watched. To me, there's some, 
there's some editing stuff that could use some touch-ups. There are some scenes that went on a little long, which threw the pacing off a bit. I think, uh, you know, you get in the mountains. We are, like Val Guest said originally, that this was supposed to be a, an adventure movie. There's a large span in the middle that there wasn't as much adventure and a lot more talking. But that's, again, but that, again, that's looking at it from a, from our more modern sensibilities, looking back at it. So to me, there is this movie stretches out a little thin in the middle. But overall, though, it's still a good movie because you're watching such a great cast work through it and stuff like that. I just there's some tightening up that could go on here for me, especially compared to other Hammer flicks that we've watched. I will agree with the it was very dialogue heavy in some in some parts. But then again, I kind of appreciated that when you compare it to modern films and all their jump cutting, which I don't like. That's true. There was actually a lot of character development and it really set up that Forrest Tucker and Peter Cushing dynamic that I really liked. They knew they had solid actors here, and they let them do what they do best. I mean, they really worked well together. Uh, you know, Cushing doing his props thing every chance he got. And, you know, Tucker really surprised me in this. I, I really liked the two of them together as kind of sort of antagonistic toward each other, but knowing they have to rely on each other to get through this. I really enjoyed it. The movie didn't do too well critically. It did come out at an odd time. You know, we're talking about how they didn't reveal the Yeti yet. You know, and Curse of Frankenstein released the same year. It's in your face, full blood color. But in this one, they're trying to dial back a little bit and a little, be a little more spooky. <laughs> you know, So it's a definitely a different film. And, and I think if somebody had to draw a line between what Hammer was and what Hammer became, it's between this film and Curse, Frankenstein, because this is definitely you know, a lot of shadow work and, and that sort of thing, whereas Frankenstein's all bloody and color and gory. I like the film a lot. I do, I do agree with Casey, though. It does draw a little thin, a little, little slow there for a little while, and I could have done without the wife and all them. Yeah. So would this movie replace either of your top fives? Nah. Nah, I don't think so. Me neither. I enjoyed it. I really agree with Casey's comment of this is a good, you know, Sunday afternoon, it's raining outside, throw this in, it's a fun watch. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's definitely worth walk it, watching. It's just not good. It's just not the top five quality. And I think, you know, because, like, we've all agreed on and stuff, there's just some stuff like the, you know, some of the going back to the monastery we didn't necessarily need. We didn't necessarily need the wife there and stuff like that. So, but, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely a great flick. And I loved watching Peter Cushing and Tom Friend working off of each other. Oh, definitely. Friend. Oh, it's it, <laughs> it's definitely Tucker, worth say. it to watch the two uh, those two actors working together. And 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 if you're worried about you know Forrest was an F troop, don't let that stop you from watching this film. Not at all. No, he shattered yeah. that. I'm gonna have a hard time watching F troop now. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, really, if you're if your only exposure to Forrest Tucker's like this is with F troop, I would say that's more of an imperative that you need to watch this just so you can be blown away by that guy's range. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I, I think the star of the show is definitely Cushing, though. I mean, it's Cushing. I was going to say, that's not, that's pretty much standard at this <laughs> <Yeah>. point. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. All right. So The Abominable Snowman, it is readily available on DVD, really easy to get your hands on. And it's one of the few Hammer DVD releases that actually has a commentary track on it that's you can get here in the States and, and pretty cheap. You know, a lot of hammer films on disc don't have a lot of bells and whistles on them, unfortunately, but this one's got the commentary at least. So you get to hear Val Guest and Nigel Neal talk about the film and you can get it through Netflix as well. I believe. So check it out. Watch it once on a Sunday afternoon. And I made it through the review without calling him Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> <laughs> So we got some voicemails here. The first one was from Nick, the comic book guy. Hey, guys. This is Nick Havert from Northern Indiana Calling, otherwise sometimes known as Nick, the comic book guy at some other podcasts. Hope you're all well. Thanks for this Hammer Studios podcast. I'm a big fan of Hammer Films, and I was delighted to find a podcast that is specifically geared toward Hammer and the Hammer actors and the lovely Hammer actresses. I've only listened so far to the Curse Frankenstein podcast. But I wanted to 
let you know that that film was selected by B-movie critic and all-around cool dude, Joe Bob Briggs, as one of his films for his book, Profoundly Disturbing. His book is all about, well, the subtitle of that book is Shocking Movies That Changed History. And he chose that among many other films that he believed changed cinema, shocking films that basically took cinema in new directions and among some of the other choices are movies like Shaft and uh, Reservoir Dogs Creature from the Black Lagoon Blood Feast Wild Bunch uh, even you know Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS things like that and he chose Curse of Frankenstein he wrote a great chapter on it and all about how the hammer color basically changed the way films look uh, it started this new well for lack of a better term it changed like the color of films and you also mentioned how Frankenstein is he's kind of the lead in this there's more focus on the man than the monster which I also love there's a great quote from, in the book where it talks about how they told when they hired Jimmy Sanctuary to write it uh, pardon my French here but they said quote uh, they wanted him to make Frankenstein a complete shit uh, they say, yeah, so they wanted him to be a real jerk and I love how they did that in the movie and how as the films progress the Frankenstein's films progress he gets more and more insane and he just his morals just go completely out the window and by the end he is quite mad so anyway I've rambled on enough thanks uh, for the podcast I'll be listening to future episodes and hey take care of yourself have either one of you read the Joe Bob Briggs book he's talking about I have it's been a long time it's same here yeah uh, I read it a couple of years back and I remember Hammer getting a nod in there and as much as I love Creature from the Black Lagoon I, I don't know if it really changed cinema but uh, some of the other films in there definitely did and I think he's right Curse of Frankenstein we kind of talked about this when we talked about Abominable Snowman. It's bloody. It's it's color. It's in your face. They're not yeah. just showing the shadows anymore. And it's it's pretty intense. And I agree. I, I'd say it probably at least changed horror cinema, if nothing uh, else. And it gave us Cushing as a horror icon. Hadley. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's evident at this point in four months in, I'm definitely on Team Cushing. So. <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to question this no, fact at this point. Not at all. Not at all. Other Frankenstein films. I mean, Casey's got a couple of the Frankenstein films on his list of top five. We don't have the Frankenstein films, any future Frankenstein films on our list of upcoming episodes through June, which means if somebody wants us to cover another Frankenstein film, you need to head over to our Facebook group and vote. Yep. And, and get Cast that on the list, yeah, because uh, in June, you guys, I'm sorry, in July, you guys get to decide what we cover. So maybe there we'll do another Frankenstein film. There hasn't been any votes for Four-Sided Triangle yet. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Except for the 35 votes for you, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, that's why we did this on Facebook, because you can only vote. We, we can keep track of how many people are voting. So unless Scott's, like, creating gummy ch- accounts. Yeah, which I know he wouldn't do, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, uh, the Facebook group, by the way, go look for 1951 Down Place over on Facebook and join the group. There's also a like page where you can like the show, which is cool to do, too. But if you want to get in on any of the conversations that are starting to pop up over on on Facebook, you need to to the group. Did you guys see the post that Matt, one of our listeners, Matt, uh, posted? A link to uh, distinctivedummies.net. Yes, I, I did look through those, and those were really cool. Uh, those were the action figures? Yeah, these are custom-made action figures, uh, one-six scale. I love the Plague of the Zombies figure. It's a 12-inch tall zombie from Plague of the Zombies. Only $99, so if anybody <laughs> got any gift certificates for Christmas and they don't know what to do with it... I'm just... <laughs> Uh, but they have a Baron Meister from uh, Bride of Dracula on there. The Peter Cushing figure, I, I don't think, looks as good as some of the others. But yeah, that Plague of the Zombies figure, that zombie is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we have one more voicemail. Hey, guys, this is Richard from Wichita, a longtime MOZ listener and uh, feedback provider. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people recognize my name and voice. So I just wanted to leave my first voicemail for... 
1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Horror. Absolutely enjoying the podcast. You know, I'm a longtime fan of Hammer Horror, but believe it or not, I did not see uh, Hammer film until I was about 10 or 11. Growing up, I was born in 67, and we didn't have a UHF station, so in the 1970s, I was exposed to the Universal Horror Films because a local station would play them, but I'd never seen a Hammer Horror film until we got cable, which was about 77, 78, right around that time. And one of the first stations we got was Channel 17 WTCG out of Atlanta, which eventually became known as Superstation TBS. And believe it or not, I'm about 99% sure on this, the first Hammer Horror or Hammer film that I saw was The Hound of the Baskervilles. I distinctly remember watching it on a Saturday morning. Uh, I think it was like right after an episode of Lost in Space or maybe Championship Wrestling, but uh, instantly falling in love with it. Now, I'm a fan of Sherlock Holmes, I'm a fan of Hammer, and I'm a, ha- a fan of uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, so really, I love this movie for multiple reasons. That said, I don't think it's the best adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles, but there's like 10 million in one of them. Um, I do feel that Peter Cushing is excellent as Sherlock Holmes. I have seen him in this and as well as uh, one of the last movies of his uh, career, The Masks of Death, where he plays an older Sherlock Holmes, and I absolutely loved him in that. I do have his BBC episodes, but I haven't had a chance to watch them yet, but I'm eagerly anticipating the opportunity to see him. And I haven't seen the Christopher Lee Sherlock Holmes uh, movies, although I do have them as well. You know, I've, I've got that same huge stack that I think just about everyone has right now of movies to watch, and you kind of have to just come with, you know, come up with a plan and make your way through it. Um, but I, I, you know, I saw the Hunter Baskervilles again several years ago when it came out on DVD, and again, it just reiterated that I love the film. I personally think that the uh, the best Hound of Baskervilles adaptation, it's kind of a toss-up for me. I really like the 1939 version with Basil Rathbone. While Basil Rathbone, for me, is the most enjoyable Sherlock Holmes to watch, he is certainly is not the most faithful to the novels and short stories. But in the same token, I really enjoy his films. I also really enjoy the 1980s version that starred Jeremy Brett. Now, Jeremy Brett, in my opinion, is the definitive Sherlock Holmes. Guys, I'm looking at your upcoming schedule. What can I tell you? you got some great stuff in there, some that I've seen, some that I haven't. Looking forward to your discussion on The Vampire Lovers and The Old Dark House. Since I have not seen those, I will be watching them in conjunction with your show. And looking forward to She in uh, June as well. And I'll have to think on that listener pick, and I'll be uh, voting on that when I can come up with a really good title. Guys, Loving the show. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. So we had to stitch those two voicemails together from Richard. Uh, there were two times he called in because we're using Google Voice, and it's got a hard – is it three minutes? Three-minute cutoff, yeah. So we had to put them together, but Richard's worth it, so it's all right. Um, <laughs> man, I don't know. If I had seen Hounds of the Baskervilles first, I, I don't know how I would view Hammer at this point because to me it was all about Dracula and Frankenstein at the beginning. Pretty much everyone knows that uh, the, f- the first that I saw was the Quatermass films, and I'm still digging on the uh, Dracula and the Frankenstein films as well. So I- I'm s- I'm changing my view of Hammer uh, from more of the sci-fi that I'm familiar with, and, mm-hmm. and expanding on it. And I- I'm sure what Richard's got a similar expansion when he, you know, he saw the other films, but uh, like him, I'm I'm curious to see more of. Um, Cushing as Holmes, I'd like to track down the uh, the BBC shows as well and and watch those. I've not seen them either. Yeah, I would be I would be down for watching those too. I need to track those down myself. You, aren't you kind of like on a Holmes kick right now? Yeah, a little bit. I've been working through it because they well right now because we've got the new Robert Downey Jr. Holmes is out in the theaters now, and plus there's a new uh, series of the the new BBC Sherlock coming too. Mm-hmm. So. It's a good time to be a Holmes fan. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen as much Holmes as I probably should to really talk intelligently about how Cushing pulled it off. Uh, but, I mean, to me, Cushing, because I'm on Team Cushing, I'm going to say he's my man, you know. Although I have heard incredibly good things about Jeremy Brett and incredibly good things about Basil Rathbone as well. So, uh, oh, yeah. You know, Richard did mention these got the Christopher Lee ones. I don't know if I really need to see those. Where Lee is, is – I just don't see Lee as Holmes. I just have it in my head that Lee is supposed to be Dracula. And I and I know 
if he gave two shits about what I think of him, I know that would bug him because I know he didn't want to be stereotyped or, or typecast as Dracula. But I guess I can't think of Lee without thinking Dracula first. And then I see, see him in other me, things, but, you know. For me, it's not so much seeing Lee as, as Lee has to be Dracula. It's Lee has to be a, a villain because he was great as Sauron in The Lord of the Rings. He was great in uh, – yeah, as Count Dooku in Star Wars, probably what? one of the better parts of Star the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> What's the Bond? <clears throat> yeah, he was. Uh, uh, which I just watched. He was uh, Scaramanga in the Man with the Golden Gun. I just watched that this week yeah. again, and he's great in that. Yeah, I just don't see him as the master detective. <laughs> and and knowing that his voice was redubbed for those films, I I just oh I just I can't imagine doing it. It just feels wrong to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, the Vampire Lovers in February. That'll be our gift to Casey to talk about his one of his Yay. favorite films during his uh, his birthday month. So, so what do we have for January? What's up next? January is Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot wait. Oh, I cannot wait. Oh. <laughs> Uh, so we're going completely off. We're, we're finally shaking off Peter Cushing, Terrence Fisher, all of them. This film, it's a vampire film, but it's not directed by Terrence Fisher. It doesn't star Peter Cushing. The music is not by uh, James Bernard. So it's, it's something totally different. It does have a Bond girl in it, so... Yeah. <laughs> it's, got some, it's got some lovely scenery. It um. does... <laughs> It's also firmly planted in uh, both Derek and I's that number three's top, in our top five. So, oh yeah. So, uh, Captain Chronos, <laughs> you can get your hands on pretty easily as well. So, track it down, check it out, join the Chronos cult with Casey and I. <laughs> and as of as of this point, when we're recording this, I still have not seen this film. So, this will be a new experience for me. Oh, I can't wait to rewatch it. It's so good. <laughs> I know. I can't wait to see what Scott thinks of it afterwards. Yeah, that's what I'm really looking forward to. That's my favorite part of this show is just getting your guys' reaction to films you've either never seen before or whatever. Well, and Marvel Summit was a first for me, so that's good. And just to kind of review the list again, this is over at our website at 1951downplace.com. Captain Kronos in January, The Vampire Lovers in February, Paranoiac in March, Quatermass Experiment in April, The Old Dark House in May, Looking forward to that. Also looking forward to She in June. May is the deadline for voting for July's listener pick. So get over to the Facebook group page and vote for your pick. Where are we right now? As of our recording. Seems odd to be talking about July when it's just a few days before Christmas. I know, I know. So at this point, X the Unknown is in the lead. Woohoo! <laughs> Vampire Circus, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Twins of Evil also have a showing on the list. So, if you agree with I've, that... I've actually seen two of those films. Yeah, see? You're making less work for Scott. So, make Scott work for it. Come over here. <laughs> All right, so Scott I just voted for X the Unknown myself, because I haven't seen that one. Oh, did you? Okay, okay. And I was going to ask Scott, which one would you vote for if you had to vote for one? Um, Four-Sided Triangle. <laughs> Have you seen that one? You keep talking about it. No, I've never seen it. I just. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting thing about four-sided triangle. uh, It's kind of sort of viewed as kind of a proto Frankenstein story because it does have the mad science kind of thing going on and it is Fisher involved. So I just remember hearing a review about it on uh, the B movie cast a few moons moons ago. I haven't decided which one I'm going to vote for yet. I figure I've got until May to add my voice in, but uh I want to go off script, man. I want to go with like a comedy or a, or a noir or something, or maybe just stay on script and add a mummy movie. But man, I don't know what I want to do. Anyway, go over to the Facebook page. You may have to scroll down a little bit to find it because as people post on the Facebook page, you know, it gets bumped down a little bit. So head over there and cast your vote. And if you want to get a hold of us by voicemail, the way Nick, the comic book guy or Richard from Wichita did. The number How do is they do that? The area code seven six five two zero three nineteen fifty one. I don't know if either one of you have actually listened to the very tail end of last month's episode, but I did include where we totally forgot our voicemail number. 
uh, at the end of the show as kind of like our post end credit blooper sequence. So I'm giggling because Scott probably has the number written down somewhere now. Is that right? Uh, no, I actually have our homepage up on my screen. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready this time. <laughs> or if they want to email us. Podcast at 1951downplace.com. Mention the Facebook page. We also have the Twitter page at 1951downplace. So you can find us online. We look forward to hearing from all of you. If you have any comments about the show or Hammer Films or Foresight a Triangle. <laughs> have you seen Force Hunter Triangle, Casey? No, I haven't. Uh, I want to, though, as much as Scott's talking about it. I know, it sounds great. <laughs> <I'm in. laughs> Wouldn't it be a square? Never mind. <laughs> well, the twist in the movie is there's actually five sides. Ooh. Whoa! It's a twist. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> Pit in your stockings. <laughs> Here comes Hammer Claws. Here comes Hammer Claws.